Welcome back, Heming Brainiacs, to the podcast of excellence for Epilogue 2, Chapter 8. We leave the historians behind and discuss the subject of free will. Are you more interested now that we are leaving the historians behind, or is this all the same to you? Ah, oh, less interested to me. And that's saying something. Uh, but I finished up yesterday's episode with the same sentiment. But when you start talking about free will versus uh, whatever the other one is, just don't care. I don't even care enough to remember the other flip side of the argument. As I've just heard it uh, a million times. And it's just not an interesting conversation to me, personally. Karakika says, uh, Wow, coming in right at the end with a nuclear bomb of philosophical questions. Just in case you didn't know he was serious about refuting historians, this passage made me lol. Thanks to that most powerful engine of ignorance, the diffusion of printed matter. If only Tolstoy knew what even more popular engine of ignorance was being used now to come together over his text. I wonder how he would, how much he would hate the internet and Reddit specifically. Ah, uh, is it really though? Does he really just hate written the written word and the diffusion of the written word? It seems like he was maybe just having a bit of a grumble. He does write books after all and read them. Um, it, yeah, it's a dumb point. He's made a dumb point there, I think. He's just saying, I think he's just trying to be hyperbolic, you know, saying hyperbolic. How do you say that word? Um, saying, you know, the written word has done more misinformation than actual information. Something like that. Could be true. <coughs> oh, excuse me. Uh, FDLP1 says, this section sounded... Similar to Nietzsche's concerns towards the hard sciences and the need for its practitioners to recognize the limits to any given scientific discovery, they cannot see that the only thing the natural sciences can do for this question is to throw light on it, one side of it. <coughs> oh, I got the sneezes, big time. Cool. Rye Bread Egg says, this is all the same to me. This is literally the worst ending to any book I've ever read. Like, I can't even compare it to any bad ending. This is worse than the then everyone clapped when they kissed ending. I would do an eye roll on those, but this, what is going on here? Land the plane, my dude. Yeah. I agree. But know this, if this is any consolation to you all. Two things. First of all, you probably know what I'm about to say, but we're like, uh, what are we? What are we? Wait, 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 wait. Eight, chapter eight. We're up to chapter eight of this. We are four chapters away from the end. That's pretty good. That's not a lot of chapters. So, we're this close. That's the first thing I'll say. The second thing I'll say is this. It's a rite of passage as a war and peace reader to grumble about how shitty the epilogues are. So, uh, enjoy it. Enjoy the grumble. <laughs> enjoy bagging out Tolstoy for ending this book so poorly um, and that's and just, and just realize that that's part of the fun of the book you know so go ahead shit talk it that's what we're here for it's part of the fun it's part of the journey here we go chapter 9 for the solution of the question of free will oh, free will again really really 
Okay, here we go. For the solution of the question of free will or inevitability, history has this advantage over other branches of knowledge in which the question is dealt with that for history this question does not refer to the essence of man's free will but its manifestation in the past and under certain conditions. In regard to this question, history stands to the other sciences as experimental science stands to abstract science. The subject for history is not man's will itself but our presentation of it. And so, for history, the insoluble mystery presented by the incompatibility of free will and inevitability does not exist as it does for theology, ethics, and philosophy. History surveys a presentation of man's life in which the union of these two contradictions has already taken place. In actual life, each historic event, each human action, is very clearly and definitely understood without any sense of contradiction, although each event presents itself as partly free and partly compulsory, to solve the question of how freedom and necessity are combined and what constitutes the essence of these two conceptions, the philosophy of history can and should follow a path contrary to that taken by the other sciences. Instead of first defining the conceptions of freedom and inevitability in themselves and then arranging the phenomena of life under those definitions, history should deduce a definition of the conception of freedom and inevitability themselves from the immense quantity of phenomena of which it is cognizant and that always appear dependent on these two elements. Whatever presentation of the activity of many men or of an individual we may consider, we always regard it as the result partly of man's free will and partly of the law of inevitability. Whether we speak of the migration of the peoples, and the incursions of the barbarians or of the decrees of Napoleon III or of someone's action an hour ago in choosing one direction out of several for his walk, we are unconscious of any contradiction. The degree of freedom and inevitability governing the actions of these people is clearly defined for us. Our conception of the degree of freedom often varies according to differences in the point of view from which we regard the event. But every human action appears to us as a certain combination of freedom and inevitability. In every action we examine, we see a certain measure of freedom and a certain measure of inevitability. And always the more freedom we see in any action, the less inevitability do we perceive and the more inevitability, the less freedom. The proportion of freedom to inevitability decreases and increases according to the point of view from which the action is regarded but their relation is always one of inverse proportion. A sinking man who clutches at another and drowns him, or a hungry mother exhausted by feeding her baby who steals some food, or a man trained to discipline who on duty at the word of command kills a defenseless man, seem less guilty, that is, less free and more subject to the law of necessity to one who knows the circumstances in which these people were placed, and more free to one who does not know that the man was himself drowning, drowning, that the mother was hungry, that the soldier was in the ranks, and so on. Similarly, a man who committed a murder 20 years ago and has since lived peaceably and harmlessly in society seems less guilty and his action more due to the law of inevitability to someone who considers his action after 20 years have elapsed than to one who examined it the day after it was committed. And in the same way, every action of, the, of an insane, intoxicated or highly excited man appears less free 
and more inevitable to one who knows the mental condition of him who committed the action and seems more free and less inevitable to one who does not know it. In all these cases, the conception of freedom is increased or diminished and the conception of compulsion is correspondingly decreased or increased according to the point of view from which the action is regarded. So the greater the conception of necessity, the smaller the conception of freedom and vice versa. Religion, the common sense of mankind, the science of jurisprudence and history itself understand alike this relation between necessity and freedom. All cases without exception in which our conception of freedom and necessity is increased and diminished depend on three considerations. One, the relation of the external world of the, of the man who commits the deed, his relation to time, his relation to the causes leading to the action. The first consideration is the clearness of our perception of the man's relation to the external world and the greater or lesser clearness of our understanding of the definite position occupied by the man in relation to everything coexisting with him. This is what makes it evident that a drowning man is less free and more subject to necessity than one standing on dry ground, and that makes the actions of a man closely connected with others in a thickly populated district or of one bound by family, official or business duties seem certainly less free and more subject to necessity than those of a man living in solitude and seclusion. If we consider a man alone apart from his relation to everything around him, each action of his seems to us free. But if we see his relation to anything around him, if we see his connection with anything, whatever, with a man who speaks to him, a book he reads, the work on which he is engaged, even with the air he breathes or the light that falls on the things about him, we see that each of these circumstances has an influence on him and controls at least some side of his activity. And the more we perceive of these influences, the more our conception of his freedom diminishes and the more our conception of the necessity that weighs on him increases. The second consideration is the more or less evident time relation of the man to the world and the clearness of our perception of the place the man's action occupies in time. That is the ground which makes the fall of the first man resulting in the production of the human race appear evidently less free than a man's entry into marriage today. It is the reason why the life and activity of people who lived centuries ago are connected with me in time cannot seem to me as free as the life of a contemporary, the consequences of which are still unknown to me. The degree of our conception of freedom and inevitability depend on this respect in, on the greater or lesser lapse of time between the performance of the action and our judgment of it. If I examine an act I performed a moment ago in approximately the same circumstances as those I am in now, my action appears to me undoubtedly free. But if I examine an act performed a month ago, then, being in different circumstances, I cannot help recognizing that it that if that act had not been committed, much the result from it, good, agreeable, and even essential, would not have taken place. If I reflect on an action still more remote ten years ago or more, then the consequences of my action are still plainer to me, and, if I, and I find it hard to imagine what would have happened had that action not been performed. Further I look back in memory, or what is the same thing, the further I go forward in my own judgment, the more doubtful becomes my belief in the freedom of my action. In history we find a very similar progress of conviction concerning the part played by free will in the general affairs of humanity. A contemporary event seems to us to be indubitably the doing of all the known participants, but with a more remote event, 
we already see its inevitable results which prevent our considering anything else possible. And the farther we go back in examining events, the less arbitrary do they appear. The Austro-Prussian War appears to us undoubtedly the result of the crafty conduct of Bismarck and so on. The Napoleonic Wars seem to us, although already questionably, to be the outcome of their hero's will. But in the Crusades we already see an event occupying its definite place in history and without which we cannot imagine the modern history of Europe, though the chroniclers of the Crusades... That event appeared as merely due to the will of certain people. In regard to the migration of the peoples, it does not enter anyone's head today to suppose that the renovation of the European world depended on Attila's caprice. The farther back in history the object of our observation lies, the more doubtful does the free will of those concerned in the event become, and the more manifest the law of inevitability. The third consideration is the degree to which we apprehend that endless chain of causation inevitably demanded by reason, in which each phenomenon comprehended, and therefore a man's every action, must have its definite place as a result of what has gone before, and as a cause of what will follow. The better we are acquainted with the physio physiological, psychological and historical laws deduced by observation and by which man is controlled, and the more Correctly, we perceive the physiological, psychological and historical causes of the action and the simpler the action we are observing and the less complex the character and mind of the man in question, the more subject to inevitability and the less free do our actions and those of others appear. When we do not at all understand the cause of an action, whether a crime, a good action or even one that is simply non-moral, we ascribe a greater amount of freedom to it. In the case of a crime, we most urgently demand the punishment for such an act. In the case of a virtuous act, we rate its merit most highly. In the indifferent case, we recognize in it more individuality, originality and independence. But if even one of the innumerable causes of the act is known to us, we recognize a certain element of necessity and are less insistent on punishment for the crime or the acknowledgement of the merit of the virtuous act or the freedom of the apparently original action. That a criminal was reared among malefactors mitigates his fault in our eyes. The self-sacrifice of a father or mother or self-sacrifice with, with the possibility of a reward is more comprehensible than gratuitous self-sacrifice and therefore seems less deserving of sympathy and the less the result of free will. The founder of a sect or party or an inventor impresses us less when we know how or by what the way was prepared for his activity. If we have a large range of examples, if our observation is constantly directed to seeking the correlation of cause and effect in people's actions, their actions appear to us more under compulsion and less free, and more correctly, we connect the effects with the causes. If we examined simple actions and had a vast number of such actions under observation, our conception of their inevitability would be still greater. The dishonest conduct of the son of a dishonest father, dis the misconduct of a woman who had fallen into bad company, a drunken's relapse into drunkenness, and so are on are actions that seem to us less free, the better we understand their cause. If the man whose actions 
we are considering is on the very low stage of mental development like a child, a madman or a simpleton, then knowing the causes of the act and the simplicity of the character and intelligence in questions we see so large an element of necessity and so little free will that as soon as we know the cause prompting the action we can foretell the result. On these three considerations alone is based the conception of irresponsibility for crimes and the extenuating circumstances admitted by the legislative codes. The responsibility appears greater or less according to our greater or lesser knowledge of the circumstances in which the man was placed whose action is being judged, and according to the greater or lesser interval of time between the commission of the action and its investigation, and according to the greater or lesser understanding of the causes that led to the action. All right. Hey, uh, it's Christmas Eve, so Merry Christmas. Thanks for listening. I hope that some of that was interesting. Uh, see you tomorrow.